This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. It's poll time again. More polls out this week with mixed results on candidates and issues. Last week, we heard from Bernie Porn of Epic MRA on his findings in a survey taken in early May. This week, the Detroit Regional Chamber of Commerce came out with a survey using a 600-person sample and conducted from May 22nd to 26th by the Glen Gariff Group, Inc. This poll found that more than 72% of Michigan voters believe the COVID-19 pandemic is largely controlled, but with 75.5%, that's three quarters, still intending to follow some mitigation efforts for safety. With roughly half of the state's population being fully vaccinated as of this week, polling exhibited 38.5% of voters plan on still wearing masks in indoor public places. 20% said they or someone in their household contracted COVID-19 during the pandemic, but 20% continue to say they do not plan on getting vaccinated against the virus. The Glenn Gariff poll found Governor Gretchen Whitmer's approval and job ratings had plummeted quite a bit from earlier this year, but Just like Epic MRA that we heard from last week in another survey, she was still leading possible Republican opponents by about half a dozen points in trial matchups. However, this week, two more new polls came out, and they found, at least one of them did, I'm going to cite these numbers first, that Whitmer's approval rating is underwater. This poll was conducted by Signal, spelled C-Y-G-N-A-L, a Republican-leaning firm that found her underwater, but about 41% positive to 54% negative. This was a June 2nd through 6th survey of 600 likely general election voters, and they found... 41% of those asked felt the governor deserves to be reelected, compared to 55.5% of those who feel, quote, it's time for someone new, unquote. The poll showed Whitmer down 52 to 41% against a generic, quote, Republican candidate, unquote, among a universe of survey participants with a 37% Republican lean and a 30% Democratic lean. So it's a marginally Republican sample. Take that into account. The remaining 31% were independents. The sample demographic is going off the assumption that Republicans will be more motivated to vote in 17 months from now than will Democrats. Now, another poll this week taken by what is called the Competitive Edge Research Firm. It found former Detroit Police Chief James Craig 
up on Whitmer, 45 to 38 percent. Surprisingly, this poll, which was taken May 26th to June 4th, a little bit earlier than the one I just cited, of 809 voters, also has former U.S. Senate candidate John James trailing Whitmer, 50 to 45 percent, which may be evidence that Craig may be the Republicans' best shot of knocking off Whitmer. It's a little surprising because James has much higher name ID than Craig, having run twice for the U.S. Senate in just the last three years. Other numbers from this poll that I just cited that the Republicans are sharing with the news media are not positive for the governor. They show, for instance, Michigan's wrong track number is 46%, right track 35%. 70% of those asked are opposed to defunding the police, while 19% are supportive. 65% support voter ID legislation when free pictures IDs are made available to those who don't have one. 65% are less likely to vote for the governor based on her proposed 45 cent a gallon gas tax increase for road funding. 61% oppose the governor's campaign to shut down Line 5 under the Straits of Mackinac. 60% are less likely to support the governor based on her nursing home policies. On election law, 51% say they are less likely to vote for Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson based on her opposition to requiring voter ID. And going back to the Glenn Gariff poll that I mentioned earlier, The subject of election law reform, let's look at that. More than 79% of Michigan voters support requiring voters to exhibit a government ID when arriving at the polls to vote in person, with 51% backing the mandated mailing of an ID copy to have absentee ballots counted as well as an ID presentation requirement to a local clerk. For proposals strengthening the ID protocol for voting, 58.4% of strong Democratic voters backed a government ID necessity for voting in person, and 77% opposed ID copy requirement for absentee voting. The poll tested the public's perceptions on a number of election reforms under review by the legislature, including, here's one, 79% supported allowing young adults to pre-register to vote when they get their driver's license, which would be allowed under Senate Bill 274. A second bill. Here's the question and percentage favorable. 71.2% are in favor of authorizing clerks to prepare ballots ahead of time which Senate Bill 283 would do by allowing local clerks to pre-process absentee ballots between 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. on the Monday before an election day. Thirdly, 66.8% support having local clerks host voting hours the second Saturday before an election day, which would be given the green light with Senate Bill 300 and Senate Bill 301. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson provided opposition to these bills, saying they defy, quote, 
data that overwhelmingly shows voters are most likely to take advantage of early voting over a series of days and hours close to Election Day itself, unquote. Fourthly, 54.8% opposed prohibiting the Secretary of State or County Clerk's from mailing applications for absentee ballots or mailing postcards with information about how to apply online without the resident initially requesting the information. This ban would be allowed under Senate Bill 310. And as I've said before, I think this is the big one for the Republicans they'd like to pass. And if they don't, I think you're going to see an initiative petition drive. Fifthly, 56.5% opposed banning local clerks from sending absentee ballots with a return postage included to voters who have already requested an absentee ballot. Senate Bill 287 prohibits municipal clerks from providing any prepaid postage on every type of absentee voter ballot envelope. And finally, 71.4% opposed mandating all counting of ballots to be done by noon the day after an election, regardless of it being completed or not, which is expected out of election inspectors under Senate Bill 299. One more poll this week, WalletHub found Michigan ranked dead last among the 50 states in its response to the vaccine rollout for COVID-19 this spring, dead last, according to WalletHub nationally. I'll be back in a minute with our first guest, so stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eric Friedman, who back in his palmy days with the Detroit News won a Pulitzer Prize uh, back in the 1990s and then uh, skedaddled to academia. And he's now the night chair in environmental journalism at Michigan State University. He's also director of the Capitol News Service. Eric Friedman, welcome to The Political Insider. Good to be with you, Bill. Okay, Eric, um, we can't compare anything to last year because we were right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic at that time. And now this year, supposedly we're in mid-June and two months from now, approximately around August 15th, I think Michigan state is going to throw its doors open, welcome students back. The academic year 2021-22 is going to begin And I'm just wondering, how do you look at the situation at Michigan State University? What's it going to be like for you as a professor there and the other faculty and the student body? Just give us a picture of the whole ballgame from uh, August 15th on in the context of what we've gone through in the last 16 months. Sure thing. (laughs) first thing we're going to see from the middle of August, faculty will come back onto campus. I have colleagues who haven't been in their office in more than a year. And we have still a lot of concern, especially among some of the older and more medically vulnerable faculty about 
whether the university will require vaccinations. Uh, the MSU president and the board of trustees have the authority, and they have not yet announced a decision on whether anybody, students overall, students in the residence halls, faculty and staff will need to be vaccinated. Uh, students will then arrive. They're going to find new kinds of sanitation and cleaning and distance requirements in the residence halls. Classes will start. We're not going to see these huge lecture classes with four or 500 students crammed into an auditorium uh, for an introductory course in, say, sociology or, or psychology. So some of those courses are going to remain online or Zoom classes. We're going to see fewer international students than two years ago. One reason is that it's harder for them to get visas to come to the United States. That whole process slowed down and came down to a trickle during the pandemic. And so that's going to mean less revenue, not just for Michigan State, but for other universities and private colleges across the state. We're going to see lots of people wearing masks voluntarily, even outdoors, because they're concerned about health and because they don't know whether anybody else who they walk by or are sitting near in a dining hall has been vaccinated. So those are some of the main changes that we're going to see. Uh, I don't know yet whether the president is going to succumb to politics or whether he's going to use his medical skills as an epidemiologist to make that decision on vaccinations. Well, let's say he does come down on the side of requiring vaccinations. I mean, what if a student says, I don't want to take one? Does that mean that the student simply has to stay at home and do everything online uh, indefinitely during the academic year? What does it mean? That's a great question, and I don't know the answer. Uh, I know that there are some schools in the state that have already announced vaccination requirements, whether for residence hall students or all students or students and faculty. Some of them are private, like Albion, Kalamazoo College, uh, Lawrence Tech, uh, but the University of Michigan and Oakland University are requiring residence hall students to be vaccinated. But uh, it's a great question. What if a student's not vaccinated? The professor knows the student's not vaccinated, and it's a small class, a small seminar class or a small science lab class with a faculty member, and the students interact close up. Uh, it's a great question. And some students and some faculty, for medical or religious reasons, won't get vaccinated anyway. Do they have to sit in a corner of the room? I don't know. Yeah, I'll, it depends to a great extent what President Stanley decides to do and how he words it, uh, how he parses this out. I mean, if you require vaccinations for students living in residence halls, what about students who don't live in residence halls? Let's say they commute or they've got private apartments or something. Uh, in East Lansing, uh, might they be allowed uh, not to be vaccinated and come into close quarter seminars? It's a great question, Bill. I, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew the answer. I know, I know a lot of faculty and staff are concerned, too. 
And then how do you know whether somebody's telling you the truth? Well, yeah, exactly. Yes, I was vaccinated. Here's a card. (laughs) Hey, you know, we used to have phony ID cards to get in bars. Yeah, we used to have phony ID cards to get in bars. Now we could have a new kind of phony card, right? And these don't even have holograms or security codes. These are pieces of paper with stickers on them from the clinic or the hospital or wherever you went to get your vaccination. Yeah, here's another question. The legislature, as you may know, has been considering bills. A Republican majority in the House and Senate uh, have been considering bills that would bar, ban uh, vaccine passports, as they're called. In other words, requirements by an employer or a municipality or unit of government uh, to have everybody under their ages vaccinated. Uh, The Republicans think this is a matter of freedom of choice and nobody should be forced to do this. Well, all well and good. First of all, Democrats, by and large, in the legislature oppose these bills. I've got to believe Governor Whitmer, who would have to sign such a bill, would veto it. Uh, But that brings the question of the great autonomy enshrined in the Michigan Constitution for higher education. Uh, We've had that tested over the years, whether the state can make certain requirements of higher education, higher institutions, our public universities, we've got 15 of them in Michigan, uh, to act in a certain way, do certain things, maybe having nothing to do with COVID-19. This has come up again and again uh, in order to get state money. And this has been tested in court. And every time the language of the Michigan Constitution is cited by a judge saying, you know, uh, the legislature in the state of Michigan government cannot require higher education to do anything other than what the higher educational institution wants to do on its own. So, I mean, I'm wondering whether this legislation, even if it passes and it was signed by Governor Whitmer, what kind of an impact would it have on, let's say, Michigan State University, of which you are a faculty member? Uh, If President Stanley says you got to be vaccinated. You got to show a vaccine passport. You got to show one of these ID cards showing you've been vaccinated. Uh, and if the state uh, tries to say you can't do that, uh, almost certainly it seems to me a judge is going to say uh, the university is right and you're wrong. State, what do you think? I think that it's a dilemma in two ways. Let's quickly separate. We have three institutions created in the Constitution of 1963 as autonomous. U of M, MSU, <clears throat> excuse me, and Wayne State. And the others, the others are all established by the legislature. So the boards of trustees are appointed by the governor. They're not elected by the people. They're not nominated by political parties. But the legislature has, and I'll use the word meddled, you might say intervened, you may say, uh, strongly advised with money dangling in front of them. But over the years, the legislature has done exactly that. It's told... And they've been been struck down by the courts every time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's... 
abortion law, that applies to the universities in, as well. That's mandated by the uh, the legislature. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's political, not just because of the issue, but because of the separation of powers. It's political because uh, there's a lot of allegiance among the public to their alma maters and where they're sending their kids. Yeah, the- we got we got to cut it off. I hate to say it. You're just really getting into it, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Eric Friedman, for giving us a great rundown on the situation in Michigan State. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the line with us Dave Boucher. It's spelled B-O-U-C-H-E-R, but it's not Boucher. It's pronounced the French way, Boucher. And he is a government and politics reporter for the Detroit Free Press and their Lansing Bureau. Dave, I believe, is a native of Michigan originally, but he went to Northwestern University. And then he has had a fascinating career in a number of states. He has been with the Tennessean in Nashville, Tennessee, covering uh, state politics in the volunteer state. He has been, I believe, the bureau chief for the Charleston, West Virginia Daily Mail. He's worked for the Dallas Morning News, but a year ago, he returned to Michigan to take this job with the Free Press, and when he arrived, everybody here in Michigan in state government thought, we're in deep doo-doo here on our budget. We are broke. We're in a deep hole uh, because of the pandemic. We have lost enormous amount of revenue. We're in trouble. And here, a year later, I mean, Dave Boucher has accomplished great things in just a year. Look, I mean, we are (laughs) flush with cash. I mean, we've got billions of dollars that we didn't think we'd have a year ago. And the question now is, what do we do with it? And when do we do it? So, Dave Boucher, welcome to the Political Insider, and give me an answer to that question. Thanks so much for having me and for giving me the credit for all of that money coming <laughs> into the state. I'll gladly take it. Uh, yeah, as you know, this is a this is a. If you're going to have a problem with money, this is a great problem to have, right? You're in a situation where you are flush with a, a considerably more money than the state had projected. The estimates were obviously based off of the pandemic and the corresponding economic crisis. And now, with an unprecedented influx of federal stimulus money, the discussion, as you noted, is not whether or not there'll be enough money, but how exactly to spend that money and whether, you know, you put that at priorities that are that have been kind of languishing for a while or you try to create programs, but you want to avoid, you know, one time spending for a program that's going to need funding forever. So those are kind of the discussions that are happening right now. in Well, I mean, uh, when you look at this budget, are there stipulations the federal government and Congress have made about how the money can be spent or how it cannot be spent? You know, there are, but it depends who you talk to about whether or not that's a problem, right? So we've heard several proposals from several different lawmakers. For example, we there one that came out of the uh, Senate that was about $1.5 billion in COVID relief to fix 400 bridges, so like an infrastructure bill. 
But there's a question about whether or not you can actually use the money for that. Uh, one of the sponsors, Senator Schmidt, he's a Republican out of the Traverse City area, told the Associated Press that he doesn't think that that's a big deal. And he actually thinks that it will fit in the parameters of how you can use that money. But we'll see. That could be one of those things where, you know, the, the governor and the administration decide you can't use the money that way. But the legislature says you can. And then <laughs> we're kind of uh, in, in flux. But uh, people are still trying to figure out exactly how they can use the money and, and where it's going to go. They're also looking at a July 1st deadline, by which time they're supposed to send by law their budget to the governor, however long she takes to either sign it or veto line items or whatever. This all uh, began two years ago when you were not here yet in Michigan, uh, when the governor and legislature had real problems putting a budget together in 2019. So they enacted a law saying we've got to get the budget to the governor by July 1st. We can't wait any longer than that. But then the pandemic hit, so they put that July 1st deadline off. And now it looks like they're talking about maybe having to do it again because they can't get a budget agreed upon by July 1st. What do you think? We'll see. Unfortunately, the answer to that is we'll see. We've we've seen... Uh, that the legislature added an additional week to their June schedule. We've been told that it's kind of like a precaution in case they need the time to, to find a, a compromise. Um, we've I've reached out to Dave Masseron, who's the head of the budget office for the governor, just to see, like, are we close? How are things going? And essentially gotten, like, a no update from us, which could mean anything. You know, it could mean that they're on the precipice of a deal. It could mean that they're a long way away from a deal. We We just don't know. And we had heard rumblings for weeks that the legislature, really the Republicans in the legislature and the governor's office were on the verge of some sort of compromise that dealt not only with the budget, but with how to use that federal stimulus money and potentially giving legislature the legislature more of a say in future pandemic orders. We haven't seen that actually happen in real time. Excuse me, real time yet. We've seen an announcement that said that there was a framework for that to happen. But as you know, July 1st is very, very soon. So uh, if we're going to see any action next week seems to be the time where we're going to see some movement. Dave Boucher, didn't the House of Representatives originally come up with an idea of passing only quarterly budgets, like every three months, uh, a new budget would have to be enacted for a lot of state government? That seems to have kind of died out as an idea, hasn't it? Yeah, and that was for some departments. It wasn't for every department. I, I think if you were to compare the strategies of the House and the Senate, the House has been has put more of a priority on this concept of accountability and wanting the Whitmer administration to come back to the legislature regularly to prove that they need the money that they say they need. Um, uh, not that the Senate hasn't done that, but it didn't, you know, as you said, spearhead this quarterly budgeting approach, which was um, – uh, criticized uh, pretty pretty quickly as soon as that came out. Uh, but but House Appropriations Chairman Albert has been very um, uh, critical of the governor and her administration. He was at one point he's the one who said if the governor's administration doesn't give on how they create these pandemic orders, then we're not going to budge and negotiate on the budget. Period. So that's kind of like, and you know, to say that publicly and come out and negotiate through us, like that's obviously a, a, a something of a of a red line. Uh, which we haven't seen from Jim Stamas, the, the Senate Appropriations Committee chairman. But again, there could be a ton of negotiations going on behind the scenes that we just haven't seen and we haven't heard about, but we're getting close to that July deadline. Let me switch to another topic. I mean, there's so many we could ask you about, but this 
concept of a vaccine passport that the Republican majority in the House and Senate are pushing to ban the use of uh, requirement by units of government, by private business, by anybody to uh, have all their employees prove with a card or ID or whatever that they've been vaccinated. What about that? Do you think you could see that passing? And Governor Whitmer, I cannot believe she would sign it. But look, here's my big question. And we talked to our previous guest about this. I mean, how does that apply to higher education uh, where we there's autonomy for our universities? And if, if Michigan State University requires vaccines to be administered to students to be allowed in classrooms, how can the legislature stop that? That's that's a great question. And honestly, it's a question that the House Fiscal Agency, which is an entity that, you know, has a, obviously a ton of experience in analyzing bills, asked themselves in an analysis of the legislation that passed in the House, which would uh, ban government sponsored vaccine passports or vaccine mandates. It asked that exact question. The, the bill as written in theory applies to the University of Michigan, Oakland University, any any universities in Michigan that are getting this public money. But that's not generally how these bills work. Like generally, these bills wouldn't apply to, uh, you know, higher education. It's kind of a separate uh, pool of, of, of funding. And it's just not generally how these these bills work. So it's unclear whether or not it would actually apply. But to your point, it's also unlikely that the governor would sign this bill. She she and the Department of Health and Human Services have both said that they're not currently exploring any sort of vaccine mandate or any sort of vaccine requirement. But that uncertainty about what this bill would actually mean could be one of the reasons why the governor could veto this. It's also just not uh, clear yet that this would even make it to the Senate the way that it's currently crafted. What about the controversy with the Secretary of State about uh, motor vehicle branch offices, uh, driver license problems, walk-in versus, you know, online making an appointment? Where do you see that going right now? Yeah, so there's no question that it is currently a challenge to get an appointment to go in person to the Secretary of State's office. The divide is what caused that problem and how to fix it. Uh, Republicans in the legislature are saying this is entirely uh, Secretary Benson's fault. That's It's her fault that she closed down her offices and she didn't allow enough people to come back in. And now she's created this massive backlog. The Secretary of State has noted that her office has been historically defunded for years and that that's a huge problem for them and that they're trying to find solutions with the money they have and the employees they have to get more people in and to shift more services online so that people don't have to come in and sit in an office for hours at a time. Yeah. Listen, we could go on and on. There are so many issues. But Dave Boucher, you have done a great job of describing what's happening with three of the big ones. Thank you so much. Dave Boucher, reporter on politics and government for the Detroit Free Press. Thank you. We will be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back and very fortunate to have with us State Representative Ann Bolin. She is a Republican of Brighton, and she represents the 42nd House District, which I believe includes the city of Brighton, Brighton Township, and four other townships in southeastern Livingston County. Is that correct, Representative Ann Bolin? Yes, it is. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, look, you were all over the news this week, and you frequently are, but I think this week more so than usual. You uh, made a statement saying that the Secretary of State is still not listening to the needs of Michigan residents. 
and service changes that uh, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson made this week are not enough to provide Michigan residents with the level of services they deserve in these motor vehicle driver license branch offices. What about that? Well, I don't think that uh, by placing a greeter in a government office to welcome people is going to help them get the service they need. They're there to get their license tab, renew their photos, uh, transact business, and they don't need a greeter. What they need is a service representative to get their business conducted. And interestingly enough, after the legislature pushed back, we had a hearing in oversight, and miraculously overnight, the Secretary of State opened 350,000 appointments. <laughs> Shows when push comes to shove, she can get it done, right? But you have to hold her feet to the fire. Well, I'm really trying to figure out, is it that we need greeters? Is it that we need $25 million more from the legislature? Or that we're just holding back on 350,000 appointments? Um, so I think that number one has to be delivering the service in a timely and efficient manner to the residents in the state of Michigan. The Secretary of State has more transactions and occurrences with the residents across the state of Michigan. Uh, I don't think we blame it on past legislators, past Secretary of States. She's been in that office two years, understands fully what it takes and what needs to be done to service the residents. The transactions, while they've increased, so have computers, efficiency. There's no reason why we can't transact the business in a timely fashion, in my opinion. Another responsibility of Secretary of State, of course, is administering elections. And uh, obviously, there's been a lot of controversy about the 2020 election. And there is a package of bills moving through the legislature from one side of the Capitol Rotunda to the other, Senate to House, House to Senate, on election law reform. How do you see those going and what do you see passing and do you think there's a chance that Governor Gretchen Whitmer will sign any of these bills? Yes, I do think there is a chance. Number one, my goal is to put good election policy on the governor's desk. And I think that as chair of the House Elections Committee, I have been working very aggressively and meaningfully to do that, to deliver that. We have over 90 bills that have been assigned to the Election and Ethics Committee that I chair in the House. We have over two dozen bills that have passed through that relate to elections um, that have passed out of not only our committee, but out of the House and are sitting over at the Senate. They have had bipartisan sponsorship, some of them, bipartisan support, and they have passed out with a majority in the chamber, moving them across to the other chamber. So. That gives me hope that uh, they are good policy. We have invited stakeholders to the table. Um, You know, I'm a former clerk of 16 years before I became a legislator, so I have a little bit different perspective. And I also think it allows me to wear a different lens when we are vetting some of these election changes. We had a historic election in 2020. We had the highest voter turnout we've ever had. It was our first major election with no reason AV, same-day registration. We had a presidential election, which always uh, creates a a different type of election, but a very contentious one. We had a secretary of state that was um, continuously changing the directives to our local clerks on how to process and and manage the elections, Um, actually overstepped boundaries of the local clerks by sending out mass applications um, while it proved that she allowed to. It created a lot of confusion. 
Couple that with laws being made from the judiciary instead of through legislation in a pandemic, and uh, I don't think that anybody should be able to say that there is not an opportunity to improve our elections here in Michigan. Yeah. And so uh, every policy that's put forth is to protect democracy, uh, protect the vote, and secure our elections. A number of polls came out this week that uh, kind of back up what you're saying, and they support things like voter ID uh, at the polls. But one of the proposals uh, in a bill, I know Senate Bill 310, I'm not sure what the House version is, 55% opposed prohibiting the Secretary of State from sending out applications for absentee ballots if they are not first requested by the voter. In other words, just gratuitously sending out these applications as the Secretary of State did last year, even though there was nothing in statute saying that this was part of a responsibility. Um, So the public, 55% seem to like this idea. How do you get around that? If you can pass this bill, do you think there's any chance Governor Whitmer would sign that? Well, uh, we actually uh, put a bill across. So, you know, the absent voter application process, first let me say that I think the absent voter application is one of the most important pieces of paper in the election process in the state of Michigan, and we have to do all that we can to make sure we preserve it um, for a a number of reasons. But but it is a safeguard uh, in answer to the integrity of our elections. Um, We do have a bill that is over in the Senate that would require local clerks to maintain a permanent absent voter application list. And so what that means is that a voter must request to be placed on that voter application list. And then for every election cycle, the local clerk who administers the elections mails out an absent voter application to those voters. And that follows the voter where they move across the state. So what it does is provides continuity for our voters. It uh, advances what was put into the proposal, into law based in constitutional amendment based on proposal three that passed in 2018. It supports the, you know, intent of the voters and their desire to have no reason absentee voter. But it does not discount that yet file an application. And that's exactly what the people have said. They want this safeguard of an application process. And that should be handled through the local clerk's office. Does the and sec- by request. Does the Secretary of State support that? Uh, so the Secretary of State supported the, perman- the establishment of the permanent absent voter application, yes. But the bill also says that if, uh, ap- if a voter sends an application from another entity like the Secretary of State, we still have to accept it as a local clerk. Yeah. Okay, you are also, um, as you just mentioned, uh, chair of the Elections and Ethics Committee, it's called, the Standing Committee. You're on the Appropriations Committee, too, and you're on three subcommittees there. But the committee you chair that's standing is uh, Elections and Ethics. And you guys also passed an ethics reform package this week, right? Yes, we did. Uh, so the ethics uh, package, uh, it actually, this is kind of the second step of the ethics package. The first one was um, many of the uh, FOIA packages, which would be the Legislative Open Records Act, more transparency and accountability of elected and uh, state government employees, um, making sure that, you know, these are the people's records. And the ethics reforms are uh, measures that would include uh, a level of financial disclosure, 
um, lobbyable officials, the revolving door, um, also uh, something that would allow the legislature to vote on if we have bad actors within the legislature that are not showing up to do the work on behalf of the people that they've been elected by to represent them, um, that there would be an ability for us to dock their pay, if you will. Um, you know, uh, our general public, they don't show up to work, they don't get paid, and legislators shouldn't get paid either if they're not showing up for work. Do you think there's a good chance those bills will pass the Senate? Yes, I do think that they will pass the Senate. I think that the the timing is long overdue. Uh, I think people, um, uh, you know, I think legislators understand how important it is uh, to restore the public's confidence and trust in the system. And uh, this is uh, a measure that will, um, I think, uh, take it up a notch and uh, make us be held more accountable to the public, as we should be. But it's also is a measure that will allow us to self-police ourselves. How about Governor Whitmer? You think she'll support these bills, sign them if she gets them? I hope so. I'm confident that she will. I don't understand why any elected official would be against um, reforming and advancing a stronger code of ethics for people in public office. What about? So I'm confident that she will. We are out of time. I was going to ask you a couple more hot questions, but uh, we don't have any time to do it. But I want to thank you, Representative Ann Bullen. You've done a great job of explaining what's going on with these two important issues, ethics reform and election law reform, and how the Secretary of State can improve situation in her branch offices. Thank you, Representative Ann Bullen. Thank you. We'll be back next week with more.